Thank you so much for clapping for me. Uh, that wasn't for me. No, but uh, let's, uh, thank you so much, choir. I love when children uh, uh, catapult and kingdom kids uh, get in on the action to give worship to our Lord. What a joy that is. And um, yeah, I, just um, not only the voices, but the, the fact that they're singing in Latin I, just puts me to shame. But uh, what a joy that was. Hey, a couple of announcements before we go forward. First of all, uh, the church is turning 25 years old. Can you believe it? It's uh, coming up uh, next month, and so we're going to have a time of celebration that, that honors God uh, October 21st, 21st, so mark that on your calendar. Secondly, KKC is having an open house today after the service in the KKC chapel. Uh, so, you know, we want parents and and the teachers to partner together to disciple your children. So please be there if you're a KKC parent. Uh, they'll provide lunch as well as child care. Uh, and also on a side note, uh, if you're a catapult parent, there's a catapult open house today after this service as well. Um, uh, that will be in the catapult chapel. Um, refreshments will be served. So looking forward to having all of you there. Um, so about... 30-some years ago, I started seminary. Um, and in one of my first classes, the professor took us on a field trip. It's a one-day retreat, and we were out. I don't know where it was exactly, a retreat site. And he took us outside, and as we were walking out in the grass area, he told us to imagine um, uh, a cemetery. And imagine tombstones where there are names the birth date and, and death dates of those who are buried. And not only those information, but a sentence which describes the kind of life that they lived. And he gave some examples. And, and then after that, we all had little pads of paper. He asked us to imagine your tombstone and what you would want written on that tombstone. Now, I was not married, or nor did I have children at the time, so as a single person starting... Uh, you know, transitioning from an engineer into ministry or hopeful ministry. You know, there were thoughts that, uh, that I had in my mind. And, you know, there was a little bit of tension of what I think people would say of me and what I wanted people to say of me. What is it, let me ask you, that people will say of you as they remember you? If you had to put it into, let's say, 10 words or less, and this is a question that you'll be discussing in your cell groups this week, what would your tombstone say? How would people remember you? Uh, if they were talking about you informally and say, yeah, Steve Chang, he is, what would people be saying of you? In today's passage, and if you have not done so yet, let's turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Uh, last week, Bang introduces, introduced us to the rich city of Ephesus and the spiritual awakening that was taking place there. Um, Paul spent more time than anywhere else. Uh, in this particular section here, he is leaving the city. And let me frame the bracket, uh, the speech that he's going to give to them. But let's look at chapter 20, verse 17 first. And now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the city to come to him. 
And when they had come to him, he said to them, so he's calling not the whole church, but the elders of the church, people whom he spent the greatest amount of time with, people whom he trusted, people whom he had a relationship with. And he gives a long talk from verse 18 all the way to verse 35, and at the end, verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. And so they, were, they embraced Paul, and the Greek words, and they had actually leaned on his neck, and they were weeping. You know how, how sometimes you get so emotional, and you give someone an embrace, and your, your face is on their neck, and, and you're, you're weeping, and tears are flowing down onto that person's neck, and this is what was going on. Grown men weeping, and one of the reasons is is because of what Paul had said that you're not going to see me again. I'm going to go on to Jerusalem. I don't know what will await me. Most likely, I, I will be in prison and then perhaps my execution, but I don't think I'll see you again. And it's true, they don't see each other again. And so, uh, for all intents and purposes, this is his last words to the his friends at Ephesus. And as he speaks to them, he's saying, this is what I want you to remember me by. The man who's began this, uh, the, the three missionary journeys, the man who uh, planted all these churches, the person who um, would be on mission if he were to you know, peel back his heart and, and try to figure out what was in him, well, he gives us a glimpse here. And he talks about four things that he says, this is how I would want to be remembered. He, he said, I, I, want to be, I want you to know that I was commissioned by God. I want you to know that I was committed to the whole truth. I want you to know that I was characterized by generosity. And I want you to know that I was concerned about the future church. And so let's uh, begin with Paul having been commissioned by God. Paul was commissioned by God. Verse 18 will begin. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And so from the beginning, he says, he, he said he was, verse 19, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. And so, and, and he continues in verse 22, and now, uh, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, constrained in other translations as I was compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. And so through trials and, and persecutions and tears of the Jews in Ephesus and imprisonment and afflictions that awaited him in, Jeru- in Jerusalem, Paul looked at life as a course to finish in verse 24 now. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of of God. You know, Paul's life, as he reflected on it, as he was communicating, he wasn't bound by his own personal desires. Like, this is my uh, call, this is what I want to do. He wasn't bound by other people's opinions, but rather, it says he was serving the Lord. He was constrained or compelled by the Holy Spirit. He looked at life this way. 
um, what is it that God had told him to do? What is it that God told him to do? And he looked at life in a very simple way that way. And the question that you and I need to ask ourselves is this. What has God called you to do in this season? You're not free to do any less, nor are you obligated to do any more than what God has told you to do in this particular season of life. You know, Christians, they sometimes fail in two ways. Some Christians, they don't feel like they have a calling from God of anything. And so they live life uh, according to their own desires and egos and appetites and drives. And that works for a little while, but it's hard to serve yourself as you become a God to yourself. And even those who think, no, no, I, I, I'm not serving myself, I'm serving other people. You know what gets hard is serving the, uh, the desires of other people and they become your God. Others feel like you know, they, they are bound by God. But they don't know what God is specifically telling them to do. So they, they believe that they are to make disciples of everyone, love everyone, uh, do all things. And, and they get so burdened by the, the pressures of this mysterious call. They feel like they need to solve all of their children's problems. They need to uh, control their children's future. They need to save the environment and uh, solve all injustices and do all that without stressing out. And it's no wonder that some Christians have such a difficult time saying no, and, and they, they're on the verge of burnout. Paul looked at life a little bit differently. Paul looked at life as a, a, a race, a, a race in which there's a set beginning and a set end, and there's a particular route or course that he is to take. At the end of his life, in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes a letter to his disciple Timothy. And it's one of the last letters he will write. And in fact, it's the last letter that we know of that he wrote. He says this, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let me ask you, how many people can say that? How many people can say, I have uh, completed the race, and I have fought the good fight. I have finished. So the question that I wouldn't want to ask you and I would want to ask me is this, what has God called you to do in this season of life? What is the course that he has set before you? What is the fight that he has uh, entrusted to you in this particular season of life? If you're not sure, begin with uh, the simple uh, declarative things of the Bible. God's told you to love God. God's told you to uh, keep the Sabbath holy. God's told you uh, to be faithful to your spouse. Don't cheat on them. God's told you not to steal and, and things of that nature. Um, now, that's hard you know, to begin with. And a lot of people, they wrestle with God even of those simple things. Um, and, and when we do, then we can't even get started. But beyond that, what is it that God has told you to do? What is it that Jesus has told you to do to do in this particular season of life? You know, perhaps, um, you know, you, 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 you are serving in our children's ministry right now and, and God has entrusted to you a group of kindergartners. And every week you come and this group of kindergartners and you love them and you, you think they're adorable and, uh, you know, they, some of them know you by name. 
and and God has entrusted their souls to you and what you have been called to for this particular season of life is to pray for them to prepare the lesson beforehand to come on time and and to to worship with them and to be a worshiper yourself and and perhaps that that's what God has called you to, and though there are needs elsewhere, maybe Catapult and R2Aid and Prime and Cell Group, they all have burdens and needs, but if we realize that this is what God has called me to right now, I, I, I am fully devoted to these things, and I don't have to feel so guilty about these other things. Perhaps God has called you to a particular neighbor that does not know Jesus. And he's laid it upon your heart to invest in, in their lives and to go out of your way to, to have coffee, have play dates with them. And though there are many, many other neighbors who don't know Jesus, perhaps this particular neighbor is the one that God has placed in your heart. You know, if you think about it this way, if you think about life this way, that Jesus has a particular uh, challenge, a course for you, then success is defined differently. Oftentimes, success is defined uh, for most of us this way, that I need to do more and bigger and better than anyone else. That's how we normally define success. But if we, if we realize that God has given me a command, a, a course, then success is defined this way. Have I been faithful to that which God has called me to do? Am I doing what Jesus wants me to do? then it becomes a different story. You know, one of my favorite verses to kind of evaluate this is uh, Acts chapter 13, verse 36. It's talking about the life of David. It says this of David, that he, for David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep. It, it says that God had a purpose for him in his generation, and he had been faithful to that. I, I wish that I could say that of me when I take my last breath, that I have served God's purpose in my generation. Uh, Paul continues. He's not only uh, felt commissioned by God, but he was committed to the whole truth. He was committed to the whole truth. Verse 20 and 21. How I did not shrink uh, like this. He did not pull back. He did not withdraw. He did not conceal. Um, from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says also later on, verse 27, that I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. Now, Paul puts it this way. There is a, a counsel of God. There's a whole counsel of God, and that some of it is difficult to declare uh, because it requires re like uh, declaring repentance, meaning there's a negative connotation, like, hey, you're a sinner, whether you like it or not, and then a positive, a faith toward Jesus Christ. There are those who are like uh, Jews, the religious, and there are those who are uh, like uh, Greeks, the irreligious. But he did not shrink from declaring to you, to us, to them, the whole uh, counsel of God. Um, you know, if you th think about it, and um, if there is a whole counsel of God, some which are easy to communicate 
and others which are difficult to communicate. If you think about this, um, a preacher, a pastor can, can get up every Sunday morning, preach truth, only truth, so there's no unbiblical truth, you know, a message coming out from his mouth. A pastor can speak biblical truth week in and week out, listen carefully, but still not be faithful to the whole counsel of God. He can only preach those things that people want to hear, but leave out that which will make him unpopular. A pastor can preach truth every week, but still not be faithful to the whole counsel of God. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was at the doctor's office. Um, I was kind of in queue, and there was a person in front of me, and this person was just angry. I, you know, and um, I don't know if she had a bad day or a bad week, but she was just angry. And she was arguing with the receptionist and uh, just getting really snappy. I've never seen anyone so angry at a, a doctor's office. Um, and when the receptionist was, you know, apologizing profusely for everything. I'm sorry, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and when there was a transition, transaction where the receptionist was handing back a piece of paper to uh, the, per- the particular person, she just snatched it and, and said some mean words and walked out and um, later, I heard that they had to call security on her uh, because she was causing such a, a mess. Uh, and I don't know why she was so angry. I, I have a feeling that it had something to do with the fact that she was in the hospital, that she was dealing with medical issues, and it was frustrating for her. It was painful for her. But it got me to thinking, if you're a, a healthcare professional, as, as many of you are here, when you're sitting with a patient and you had to... Um, you had to deal with a patient as if you were a Yelp restaurant or a Yelp doctor. And, and it, did, it largely depends, your success largely depends on the Yelp rating that your patient gives you. How easy it would be to try to uh, uh, communicate to the patient what they want to hear and not necessarily all they need to hear. Does that make sense? To give a correct diagnosis but not the whole diagnosis. So imagine a patient coming in, and as a doctor, uh, you say to your, your patient after a full set of blood work and full set of uh, tests, that what you really want to say is that you are, um, you're on the verge of, of severe diabetes, and unless you get this under control, you're, you, you know, it's, it's going to decline really quickly, and your biggest issue is obesity. That's what you want to say, but you know that that's not going to go so well. So what you say is, you know, I, I looked at your blood work, and it looks like you have clear skin. Um, you don't have to worry about acne. Um, congratulations. I'll see you in a year. And, and, and that would be a more popular thing to say, an easily digestible thing to say, but that is not the whole diagnosis, is it? Paul is saying that oftentimes in our relationships, in our spiritual relationship, what we do is we say the good things, the positive, the, the, po- the popular, but not the whole counsel of God. And because he was able to preach the whole counsel of God, he says in verse 26, 
Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. I, I, I communicated, I declared the whole council. The third thing that he says of himself is that he was characterized by generosity. He was characterized by generosity. Verse 20, 33, I coveted no one's silver or gold, or listen, or apparel. I found this interesting that he did not look at others for what he can get from them, but rather he looked at them as to what he can give to them. He did not look at their home. He did not look at their vacations, nor did he look at their cars and say, I want that. And as a pastor, church planter, as a missionary, why aren't you paying me my full compensation and benefit? But rather he looked at what he can give to them, rather than what he can get from them. He didn't look at the people in the church as, as a way to make money, per se. He goes on in verse 34, that he did not covet from them, nor, he demand, nor did he demand from them, but, but rather, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. He not only worked, uh, but really, he, he worked so that he can support some of the staff at the church. And beyond that, in verse 35, in all these things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help um, the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He didn't look at people as, how, what can I get from you, but rather, what can I give to you? Uh, you know, a lot of the relationships that we have, even Christian relationships, we um, view it in a transactional manner. Let me try to describe to you what I mean. Suppose a coworker, a coworker who lives near you suggests, hey, uh, what do you think about carpooling? And you know, carpooling can mean one of two things, right? Carpooling can mean you drive, let me sit, right, and, and, and take a nap while you drive. Or it can mean carpooling can mean I drive, why don't you sit, sit peacefully as I pick you up from your home and take you to work, right? If a coworker says to you, let's carpool, um, you know, part of you is curious, but you're, you put on your transactional hat and say, okay, is this going to be uh, something that I get or is this something that I'm going to get? If someone offers to a carpool with you, uh, think with me, and they say, and you say, sure, what do you have in mind? Um, and this, uh, this co-worker says to you, why don't you drive four out of the five days in the week and I'll drive on Friday, right? You drive Monday through Thursday and I'll drive on Friday. How are you going to receive that? You're going to say that is what? Unfair, right? You're saying, because you're going to receive that and say, wait, you want me to uh, drive 80% of the time and you uh, drive only 20% of the time and you would probably take that offer and say, no, I don't want to do that. Okay. I think I, think I heard a phone somewhere here. But. Um, and, so, and so this is what we do. When someone offers a relationship, a partnership, we put on this transactional hand and saying, okay, am I giving more or am I getting more? And if we feel like, if, if, uh, if we feel like I am giving more than I am getting, we say, no, I, I don't want to do that. But economically, do you understand 
that if you drive 80% of the time, but you get to ride 20% of the time, you're still economically better off carpooling than not carpooling. Do you understand that? The, the people, who, yeah, people who studied economics, does that make sense? Right? You might drive this other person four days out of five, but you're saving gas at least one day out of the week. And that is actually beneficial for you. But we don't like that arrangement because we feel like we're giving more than that person's giving. We view relationships this way. Am I getting or am I giving? It happens in marriage. Am I giving more or am I receive, or, 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 or receiving more? And if you feel like we're giving more, if you feel like we're doing the more accommodating, we don't like it. You know, it happens with kids. You know, after a while, they grow up and go, now it's time for you to give. Come on. Right? And, 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 and with some of the good parents, we hold it until they graduate college and go, okay, now. Now you need to make up for the 22 years I've given to you. It happens in our... Uh, friend relationship or church relationship. It is interesting how Paul puts it in verse 35. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. His life philosophy was a little bit different from ours. Uh, He was willing to give, even though there are times he wasn't receiving getting because he really got, he received what he needed from the Lord Jesus. Now, finally and lastly, Paul was concerned about the future church. Paul was concerned about the future church. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourself and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own Blood. He is talking to them and he's telling the elders, make sure you're caring for the church, caring for the flock. And here's the warning, verses 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So he's saying of the church, be careful because what will happen, there will be fierce wolves who won't spare the flock, they'll uh, speak twisted things and draw people away uh, uh, from the church, from Christ. Now, um, but attacks on the church has been happening ever since the beginning of the church. And uh, and the the early church uh, began with opposition, and the church at Ephesus had opposition, and Paul talks about the the opposition from the Jews. Um, Just this morning, I, I got an email from one of our missionaries. And uh, the missionary said and, um, and that the U.S. consulate office has told them to carry this phrase around and a phone number. And the phrase is something to this effect. Um, I must call the U.S. embassy. Uh, if you are detained or if you are uh, told by the authority to go somewhere with them, uh, show them, say this Chinese phrase to them, I must call the U.S. Embassy. The embassy, is a, uh, the consulate office also has told them to have bags packed in case you have to leave the country immediately. Now, 
uh, one of the most powerful countries in the world is systematically uh, opposing the church. That's the, what's on the news quite a bit, um, at least as far as uh, in some circles are concerned. But there's another cycle of news that's happening about the church. And this cycle of news is this, that there is a, uh, just a brewing scandal occurring, a lawsuits pending uh, of those who have been abused within the Catholic Church and that had been covered up. Now let me ask you a question. What is a greater danger for the church? Is it the systematic persecution by a government or is it by uh, the scandals that happen because of those who are supposedly spiritual leaders within the church? What do you think is a greater danger? And I think you and I know the church has survived uh, thousands of years of persecution and has learned to thrive, but it's, the, it's those from within the church that can create perhaps the greater damage. Look carefully at verse 29 and 30 again. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Do you understand what he's saying to them? He's talking to the elders. He's saying the greater danger is not necessarily from the outside. The greater danger is that one of you will become wolves. That one of you will damage the church. That one of you, as a a teacher of kindergartners, will lead the kids astray that one of you as a deacon or an elder will begin to form disciples after your own uh, liking and away from the church, that one of you will begin to to get on social media and say outlandish uh, uh, just uh, things that are so unedifying that it turns people off from, uh, from Christ. And so he says to them, be careful, pay attention to yourselves. What is it that Paul is trying to say? At the end of his life, he wants to be able to say that I I did all that Christ told me to do. He wants to be able to say, I declare the whole truth. He wants to be able to say, I gave more than I got. He wants to be able to say, I cared beyond myself. Here's the irony. The irony is this, that If we live for ourselves, it'll never be enough. We can never satisfy ourselves enough. Have you ever thought about this idea? Like, when is it that, like, you would have enough money and you would not want any more money? Can you get to a point where you say, I have enough love and I don't need any more love and 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 everyone else can hate my guts and I'll be okay? Can you get to a point where, man, can you say, you know, I have enough respect and and if other people disrespect me, I'll be fine. Do you realize that that some of those things will never be enough if our goal and motivation in life is me, it will never satisfy, it will be like drinking salt water. But if we realize, as Paul did, that we live not to ourselves, but for Christ, then everything changes. If we point people not to us, but to Christ, then everything changes. And so 
I'm going to ask the, the band to come up at this time, as Jesus did in Mark chapter 8, verses 35 and 36. He said to his disciples, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And Jesus makes the point to all the disciples past, present, and future, that if you want to save your life, if you want to live a life that is meaningful, then give up your life. Point to Christ. Live for Christ. But if you live for Christ, then you have everything. Lord, would you take the souls of the men and women here? Would you allow us to examine our lives? And Lord, we, we catch ourselves living for our own glory, for our own pleasure, for our own egos. And it leaves us hungry. But Lord, as we look to you, you've lived a life that we needed to live. And, and Lord, you, you gave without receiving. And so we look to you, we point to you, Lord. We thank you once again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.